0: Amen. If you'll remain standing with me at this time, if you have a Bible, you can take it out at this time. We're going to start this morning with our scripture reading in John chapter 20, the gospel of John. And we're going to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll have the words up on the screen for you. And I wanted to read John 20 this week because uh, having grown up in the church myself, this is kind of one of the lesser read accounts of it. And so I was delighted to be able to preach from this this morning. But John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Christ has died, Christ has been buried, and now we pick up here. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, that would have been Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken From the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That would have been John, who's writing this. And said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. And reached the tomb first, so John is faster than Peter. And stop stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, and following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. May God bless the reading of this word. You may be seated at this time. Well, I want to give you a very warm welcome this morning to Wadoke Baptist Church. My name is John Wethington. Uh, I'm the pastor here, and as we begin to celebrate Easter today, there are churches all across the world in many different formats celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the title this morning is The Comeback King, and I'm pretty excited about that because it rhymes with Easter 2016, The Comeback King, so I'm feeling really good about my sermon title this morning. Um, But... You know, we often say things like, uh, and this is preacher talk, we're born into a broken world, you know. And, and that's true. We, we are born into a broken world. There are elements of this world that are, are broken. But I think sometimes we forget the story. It's a lot bigger than that. You see, we're not just born into a broken world. We're also born into a world that, because of the resurrection, has a lot of hope. There is brokenness, and there is darkness, and there is pain, But we live in an era of fulfillment when Christ has risen. You see, what we believe this morning is that with the comeback king who is Jesus Christ, that hope springs eternal. And what I want for you this morning is not just to look at the resurrection, but I want you to begin to write your comeback story in this life. I think comeback stories are the most inspirational narratives in our day. And I think the reason for that is because deep down inside of us, all of us know we need a comeback story. All of us are struggling. Life is hard. It's full of setbacks. It feels like every morning when we awake, we awake in the tomb. And what I believe that comeback stories do is they give us hope that maybe we too could rise— One of those stories that's kind of lighthearted that I heard this week was um, a story about a dog. And so, anytime it's a dog story, I always click on it on the internet. And there was this story about this cute little dog named Luna. I've got a picture of her up here. Uh, Luna, I want to tell you Luna's story, okay? It's an adorable one year old German Shepherd girl dog. And yet, Luna went through a tough time. Uh, She was with her owner, who she's very close to, who's also a, a Marine. And they were fishing, or I guess he was fishing, she probably wasn't fishing, uh, about 80 miles off the coast of San Diego. And unfortunately, Luna fell off. And the master was uh, terrified, he was uh, beside himself, and he couldn't find her. And so what he did was he went to the only possible place she could have possibly gone, which was an island literally two miles away from where she fell overboard. And he went to that island, and he looked everywhere, and absolutely gave up an entire week looking for her, but still could not find her. So they, they called off the search, and they presumed that she was dead. And yet five weeks later, there was a group from the Navy doing some work and doing some training um, in that same spot, and they came up on this remote island. I didn't know there were islands off of the coast of California, but this remote island, deserted, that no one lives at, right? Um, 80 miles off the coast, and they show up for a training, and they, they, they come up on this, this uh, island, and all of a sudden there's this domesticated dog with a tag that like runs out to meet them. And they're kind of shocked by this. And they find her, and they, and they return her back to her master. And he was beside himself, and it was all over the news. And the amazing thing about it was not only was it miraculous in that literally when she fell overboard, she knew the one direction to go to the island. Like, I mean, how could, how could she have known? I mean, could, could she sniff the island or something? But she went to the island, and then she was able—and maybe dogs are better swimmers than I realized—she swam literally two miles to get to the island. And then my favorite part is, once she got to the island—because Supposedly, kibbles and bits are not found on an island. She literally lived off of island mice for five weeks, keeping herself alive. And that's one of those stories they kind of share at the end of like a news story after it's like they, the local news. They talk about who, who died and all the houses that burned down and everything. They close like a, like a heartwarming story. But comeback stories are amazing Raise your hand if you saw the Texas A&M game a few weeks back, that that amazing comeback. I got a few basketball fans in here. I watch sports all the time, right? I watch college basketball all the time, and I saw the most miraculous comeback I've ever seen. Texas A&M came back from 12 points down with 35 seconds left in the game. It was a miraculous comeback. And yet the irony of that whole story was that the parents of the kid who hit the game-winning shot didn't even see him hit the shot because they left with a minute left in the game, to beat traffic. I think there's an analogy in there somewhere that whenever you lose hope in life, you can miss a lot. I would even make the argument that nature is in rhythm with the resurrection of Jesus. Every fall and winter, it gets cold and it gets dark and plants die. And yet every spring, Things emerge and they burst into new life. And I also found it ironic that we celebrate Easter essentially at the beginning of spring every year when even creation is bursting into new life, into fullness. It's as if nature is making its wondrous comeback in the world. And so what I want you to know this morning is Easter is all about hope. It's all about giving us hope. It's all about seeing that God really loves us, that he really is with us in the midst of our pain and our sin and our brokenness. And that with the, comebacks, with the comeback king, hope springs eternal in the world, in your life, in your pain. And what I believe is that there is a God-ordained comeback in all of us. See, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus Christ died this is why this is so miraculous in John nineteen thirty, it says that after he uh, died he said or before he died he says it is finished and then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit scripture makes it clear that he died and then a few verses later it says now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden how ironic that Christ was buried near a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid and so because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And yet the wonder of the resurrection is that Jesus Christ came back. You want to know why they were confused about Jesus? And you want, you want to know why I think we're often confused about Jesus? Because back in Jesus' day, when he came to the Jewish people, He kept claiming that he was a king, okay? And when you think of a king, right, you think of like a big massive sword, right, and a really awesome guy that goes out and just like kills his enemies and kills his oppressors. And maybe he's got a big shield, and and a king is often a really good organizer, so he goes and builds his army. And the Jewish people, what they wanted for Jesus when he claimed to be the king, come to save Israel, is what they wanted was a guy that was going to come and conquer the Roman Empire. And so he kept saying he was a king, but he had like 15 followers, right? And they're like, where's the army, right? Where's the battle? Where's the power? Where is the strength? And yet the wonder of what Jesus was doing, and what you have to give him credit for, was he was conquering not just the Roman Empire, but death itself and pain itself. That Jesus was up to much bigger ambitions than just helping a simple country overcome its oppressors. That Jesus was doing a miraculous and a wondrous work. And then he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And he said he was going to. He said, I'm going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. But then he rose again to bring all of us a glorious future. And here's where I think it begins to get hard for us. As we look at this story, and we we hear about the wonderful resurrection, and then Monday morning comes, right? Is Monday morning a glorious occurrence for you? Like, ever? It's like, he is risen, and you have Facebook and Twitter, everyone's posted, he is risen, hallelujah. You're like, we never use the word hallelujah in our, like, vocabulary, but I'm like, hallelujah, you know? He's risen indeed, the gates are open wide of heaven. Where we've got all this like pithy language that we're using. And then Monday morning shows up. But as Christians, we should be the most hope-filled and optimistic people. Because the death of Jesus confirms that there is pain in life, but the resurrection confirms that there is always hope in your life. For anything you struggle with, for any setback you face, for any sin you struggle with, if your body is aging and you need a healing, the cross recognizes pain, but the resurrection said there is always hope for everything that you you deal with. And and maybe you forgot that, that there's hope in everything that you struggle with. You know, I read Psalm 16, King David, and I'm going to read this, and I want you to ask yourself, does this this echo your heart in, in life most times? He says, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. For God, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. He says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is that the song your heart constantly sings? Of course not, right? Because you're like me, and you leak hope more than a dollar store hose, okay? Like, it's just not working. We get this hope and then we, we go into Monday morning and we're like leaking hope everywhere. We have an argument with this person. Our kids are tough. The, the job is, is, is a grind. And, and one thing after the next and we begin to lose hope and lose hope. And yet what Jesus began to do is 2,000 years ago, and we are a testament to this, Jesus' followers became a comeback people living in a setback world. Jesus' followers are comeback people living in a setback world. In Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, it says this. It's up on the screen. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on the things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says as Christians we think differently. We look at the setbacks in our life and any setback we face, we get optimistic because we're ready for a comeback. In Romans 8 verse 18, Paul says, the same guy says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You want to know why the New Testament is so much better for you to read oftentimes than the Old Testament? You ever read some of the Old Testament stuff and just been like, whoa. If you get a spare moment, go dig in the Old Testament. We've recently preached the entire Old Testament starting back in January— and, uh, and, and I, I know I probably shouldn't say this, but we were talking about this, and we were, like, so glad to get out of the Old Testament, right? We're so glad to get to Jesus, you know? It's the same old story. Israel stinks. God is faithful, right? Israel does bad stuff. God sticks with them. I mean, Israel is, like, awful, just like us, right? Falling short, sinning. I mean, some crazy things happen. And the reason why the New Testament is so different so much better is simply because of the resurrection. It changes everything. There's an optimism, and there is a hope. And yet here's the crazy part. Jesus didn't just rise and say, hey, look, I'm risen. Look at me. This is awesome. Come look at me. This is awesome. The Bible says that you and I are expected to also rise with him. That we are a comeback people living in a setback world. See, the cross was a setback of sorts. But how wondrous is it that even the cross God takes and makes it one of the most amazing things of all creation where when Christ died, literally, he forgave your sin and he forgave my sin. You see, in the Christian life, there, there really is no such thing as a setback because Romans 8.28 clearly says that God works all things together for the good of those who love See, we live in a setback world. Everyone you know is struggling with setbacks. And the problem is most people in life, they stop at setback. And they never get to the comeback part. Life is tough. Marriage is tough. Parenting is tough. Dealing with hard times is difficult. And the problem is we miss the best part of life, which is the resurrection, which gives all of us Hope. I I read this statistic that said that for a a pastor at a church, usually his best years of ministry are years 5 to years 14, right? Years 5 to 14 are his best years. And I'm going to let you guess what the average tenure of a pastor is. Guess. No, four years. Best years of ministry, 5 to 14, average pastor leaves at year 4. We live in a set-back world. But we are a comeback people. And then here's where it begins to apply to your life this morning. So I want you to lean into this with me. I want you to lean into the gospel here for a moment. Because what your faith in the comeback does, the resurrection of Jesus, literally the most earth-changing moment that's ever happened in the history of humanity— See, faith in the comeback leads to your comeback in this life. Faith in the comeback leads to your comeback. Let me tell you about a guy who was a complete and utter failure. There was a guy who uh, grew up in the 1800s, and uh, he was a really poor guy. Anyone broken here? (laughs) We're all kind of broke, right? Really poor guy from meager backgrounds. Was, uh, his parents were basically peasants in America, not from what you would consider the greatest stock. Poor and meager. As he got into his 20s, he thought it'd be a good idea to start his own business. Starts his own business, and it fails. So he's like, well, I'm going to try again. So he starts another business. And what does that business do? It fails. After two businesses that failed... And being broke, he thought it would be a good idea for him to then enter politics. Shortly after beginning his political career, he has what they refer to as a nervous breakdown, meaning he's so overwhelmed and so deeply and darkly depressed that he literally can't even function in public. There are days this man cannot even get out of bed, and they say for a year or two he literally can't stop shaking. At this point, he's in his early 30s. But for some reason, he continues his political career, runs for Congress, and he loses. Runs for Senate, and what do you think happens? Loses. Runs for Senate again. What do you think happens? Loses. This guy is an utter failure in life. Somehow gets on a presidential ticket as a vice president, and what do you think happens? Loses. So let me get, catch you up. Poor guy, nervous breakdown, two businesses failed, lost a bid for Congress, two Senate bids lost, lost a bid for vice president. And then through a crazy set of circumstances, he becomes the 16th president of the United States of America. His name is Abraham Lincoln, and he goes on to be known as the greatest president in the history of America. But it doesn't stop there, right? You think, oh, it's all great. You know, Abraham Lincoln, like what a great story, okay? Finally becomes the president. What happens? Country splits. Worst American disaster ever. Complete failure. But he's able to keep the country together through his own sacrifice, which most people say, literally, this man at like the age of 40 was probably at the age of a 70-year-old man because of so much wear and tear in his body. Abraham Lincoln was a comeback guy living in a setback world. See, the problem today is we give up on people too easily. We, we, we lose one job, and all of a sudden it's like, I'm a failure, You know, you go through a divorce or you go through one bad circumstance and all of a sudden, like, we're worth nothing. We have, like, one bad day. We have one argument with somebody. And all of a sudden, everything in our life is not good. And what most people said about Abraham Lincoln was that all of his failures were the things that made him qualified to be the president that would save America during the Civil War. You see, Romans 10, verse 11 says, and it's up on the screen. This is like my key verse for this morning. Like, hear these words. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness— If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the hardest part of the resurrection for me to believe. It makes sense to me that God would rise from the dead. I believe that, right? I I know people want to write it off today in this age, but I don't want to get into the apologetics. you got the internet. You can look up those things for yourself. There's a lot of evidence for it. But sometimes, man, for me, the hardest part of all this to believe is that, like, I can be raised from the dead. Because life is so hard, and there's so many setbacks. I thought I'd make a list of some of the setbacks, um, I, I'm gonna give you like 18 reasons why life is hard, right? This is just my list. I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can create your own. Flat tires, amen. Hang nails. Those are the worst. Good tasting food is bad for you. What? What's up with that? Houses are expensive. College is expensive. I've heard that kids are expensive. Where, 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 are my, where are my students at? Tests exist. That <laughs> guy is that college student in the background, right? People are mean. Amen. I got an amen on that. Gossip. Facebook exists. <laughs> Parents don't get us. Kids don't understand how their current actions will harm them in the future. On a more serious note, betrayals, death, loneliness, jobs are hard, we lose jobs, aging bodies, temptation, depression. Have you fallen behind in life? Do you need to come back this morning? I had a friend when I was in college, and he was a lot older than me. And he uh, he had already raised his family. He was probably in his fifties, and he had four kids, and they were all grown. And it's uh, the nicest man you could ever imagine. And he he shared his story one day in class, and he said uh, that he was raised kind of like a you know kind of like a nominal Christian, like you know he, he would have said he was a Christian, but didn't really practice his faith or anything, didn't go to church or anything like that. And so, uh, because of that, obviously he didn't raise his kids in church, and as his kids got older, because they didn't really take, you know, their faith seriously, they, they wandered away from the church. And by the time most of his kids got grown, they were, like, professing atheists and agnostics and not walking with the Lord. And then one of his kids got into a really bad drug habit, and uh, as his kids began to say they didn't believe in God, like, very clearly, all of a sudden it made him really question his own faith and kind of what he believed and so he began this journey of seeking out the Lord, and he, he said he started going to church and seeking out the Lord, that he, he fell in love with Jesus, and he believed the gospel, and in a miraculous turn of events, like God saved him and did a great work in his life. But he said for the longest time, he, he struggled to, to come back or to actually start going to church, because every time he would go to church, it would remind him of how he didn't raise his kids in church. And he said every time he'd step foot in a church building, it was like this painful experience. And, and then he was afraid his kids would like see him going to church and be like, how come you didn't take us to church and how come all of a sudden you're doing this? Like he, he just had all these obstacles in his life. He had this massive setback and wasn't sure what to do. But eventually he just felt God calling him to like be a part of the church and to lean into a church and to begin to practice his faith powerfully. And against all of his frustration and his pain and his his worry about the situation, he just started going. And he said by God's grace, through his work and his life, through the church, literally he was able in a span of like three years to see all four of his kids come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he even got to baptize them himself. You see, what fear does to you is it keeps you from everything good in your life. The world lives in absolute fear, fear of death and fear of people not liking you and fear of like my body image and all these things. And fear is nothing but a hindrance to you. The world is a place of immense setbacks, but we are always looking for a comeback because the center of our faith is about a king who came for us, died on the cross, and came back in glory and power. And every single day when when we wake up, we are practicing raising to new life like Jesus Christ did. I want you to think about where in your life you need to come back this morning. I want you to believe that it can happen. I want you to look to the resurrection. I want you to lean into that idea and begin to think about what could actually happen. Because here's the, here's the wonder. The resurrection doesn't stop at Jesus, Paul says. It continues in you and me every single day. Setbacks happen, but so do comebacks in our lives. One thing I've, I've learned as I've become a pastor is um, all of a sudden, like, when I became a pastor, um, I got this, like, like holy garb of, like, holiness, and, like, it, people, like, interact with me, like, weird. I've, I'm the same person I've always been, you know, but now I'm a pastor, and so that's, like, really weird, and people ask me, what do you do for living? Oh, I'm a pastor. Like, oh, wow, that's weird, you know. Uh, that's, a, that's a job, you know. Um, And—but uh, and, but in the church, it's different. Like, all of a sudden, you become a pastor, like, all of a sudden, like, everyone's like like— well, they want your advice on everything, and I love counseling, and I think I am equipped to do that, but, um, you know, it's just all of a sudden, like, everybody thinks, like, you're, like, this perfect person, and you, you don't have issues, and, you know, you're, I, I just am, like, this perfect little angel here to help you, and yet the reality is, man, I, I am just as broken, and I am just as needing of resurrection as everybody else, and, and where that really kind of sank in for me was, I remember it like it was yesterday, the end of 2014— I remember, like, the dates. It was, like, October to December of 2014 where I went through this, like, random and out-of-nowhere bout with depression. And growing up, I, I had never been depressed, and I had never gone through anything like that. Like, I, I was honestly kind of skeptical of it, to be a little bit honest with you. I thought, oh, you're, you're just sad, right? That's, that's totally different, right? And then I experienced it for myself. And everything that they say about it is totally true. You see, the best way I can describe depression, at least what I went through, was hopelessness. Just a general hopelessness in every area of life. And it's like everything in life feels like a setback, and and yet the worst part about it is not only is it a setback, but you don't think that anything will ever get better. It's this haze, it's this darkness, it's just constantly over you. Maybe you've felt that, maybe you're struggling with that today. And I remember going through that and just be like, man, what is, what is going on with me? Like, like, like they say, like, like the things that used to kind of get me excited didn't get me excited anymore. And I was just kind of going through this haze in my life. And I was meeting with this guy who I was kind of seeking some counsel from in that moment. And he had this phrase that has always stuck with me. And he was talking with me and he said, man, what is the center of the Christian faith? And I was like, oh, well, it's the, the resurrection of Jesus, right? It's like the, the crux of it. And he said something they'll never forget. He said, John, you need to begin practicing resurrection in your life. And that's a great phrase because if you know anything about sports, you know, practice is like not the real game, it's practice in the words of Alan Iverson. Most of you probably don't get that, right? We're not talking about the game we're talking about practice. Some of you got that. <laughs> practice is when you're going through the motions. So that when the time arrives and things are official, you perform better. And what I began to find in that season of my life was the power of belief. And not like a fake belief, not just like you're lying to yourself, but that you're beginning to believe the words of Jesus more than you believe your feelings or your circumstances or the things that you're struggling with. That moment where the resurrection becomes more important to you than how you feel about life. That moment where Jesus' life literally becomes your life. And it's like, I feel horrible, but Jesus is amazing and all of my life is literally in him. And I went through this three month stint and I began practicing resurrection and I began surrounding myself with hope filled people and I began reading the Bible more than I ever had. I began to pray. I read through Psalm 23 in a way that actually was personal for me. I began to practice resurrection in my life and say, hey, Christ rose, that spirit's in me. I don't feel like it, but I believe it. And I'll tell you what, church, I didn't just beat depression, I found happiness. to the point where literally last year was the absolute best year of my life. You see, faith in the comeback leads to your comeback. I know we always have excuses for why we're not going to have a comeback, and I've been this way for so long, and, you know, I've tried before, it didn't work. That's not true. You tried before and you gave up. If you're still alive, you still got a chance. We say, I tried, it didn't work. No. It's like the guy who said, prayer doesn't work. It's like, what's the longest you've ever prayed in your entire life? Uh, two minutes. (laughs) Doesn't count. You don't know that prayer doesn't work, you don't pray. (laughs) It's this idea that every morning when you wake up, even if you had a horrible day, it's time for a comeback. It's time to raise up. It's time to believe. It's time to be a comeback person in a setback world. But then I know there's some people in here, and you say this, but what if I doubt? I hear what you're saying, John, and it sounds great. And of course I want that kind of hope in my life and You know, I I wish it was that easy, and I wish I was optimistic, and I wish that, as we said earlier, that the future was glorious. I I wish that was the case, right? But I I just don't feel it. And lucky for you, in our text this morning, there's a guy who is just like you. His name was Thomas. And yet before I tell you the story of of Thomas, um, if you're a doubter this morning, I I want you to know one thing. you're, You're welcome here. You're welcome here. Everyone faces doubt at times. Sometimes you doubt your spouse loves you, right? Sometimes you doubt the, the truest things to your heart. But here's the one thing. If you doubt, you, you are welcome here. But, and, and we'll walk with you, but, but you have to promise me one thing. You have to promise me at the very least that you will try to believe. That you will try. That you will seek. Because I think so often what we think is doubt is really just spiritual apathy. Say, I'm not sure if I believe, I don't know about all this. And it's like, like I say, you never read the word, you never pray, you you don't gather with the church, you don't fill your life with the image of the gospel on a day-to-day basis, and then you end up feeling like you don't believe. It's like the disciple that heard about it and didn't go to the tomb. I don't know if it's true or not. And there's this story of a guy named Thomas, and it's in John chapter 10, this will be our last scripture for this morning. John, I mean, sorry, John chapter 20. I'm just going to read this, verses 24 through uh, 29. Thomas is one of the 12. It says, Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So when Jesus showed up originally to the disciples, he wasn't there at that gathering. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? The blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And here's the thing about doubt. When in doubt, touch the faith. When in doubt, touch the faith. And let me explain what that means. When Jesus held out his hands and showed him the place where literally the nails had been driven in. Which, let's pause for a moment. That's one of the most amazing things this whole story for me, is like the fact that when Jesus rose, he left the scars on his hands. You ever ever notice that? Like, he was risen to new life. He could heal anything. And yet then when he rises, he leaves the scars on his body so he can minister to the faith of Thomas. See, Jesus works with us. He meets us where we're at. He knows that we're weak, and he knows that we struggle. And what I believe and what I've come to find is that in this life, God has given more than sufficient ways to see him and experience him in this world. Whenever you doubt, touch the faith. Whenever you doubt, touch the Bible. Man, whenever you doubt and you're just not sure, touch prayer. Begin living the life that Christ tells us to live and see what happens in your life. Whenever you begin to doubt, touch generosity and see what it does in your heart. Touch communion, which we'll take here in a moment, and see what it does in your heart. Touch forgiveness, touch faith, and touch hope, and touch the ways of Jesus, and then quit doubting and believe. But just like Thomas, when in doubt, you have to try taste and see that the lord is good just like they say you you are what you eat you have to know yourself you have to fill yourself as i've said before house and i have this like policy where we don't contemplate life after 9 p.m. <laughs> cuz we're tired and we're you know everything's like awful after 9 p.m. you know and you wake up in the morning and everything's just like roses And the greatest core of our faith is the gospel. And the good Jesus is the most seductive part of the faith. That simply through believing in this resurrection, that all of us can have our own comeback in this life. I don't know where your life is at this morning. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how good things have been, how bad things have been. I don't know if things are stressful, but I I guarantee you, There's an area in your life when you're struggling and you need to come back. Maybe it's a sin in your life. It's a secret sin that nobody knows about. It's a struggle. It's an insecurity. It's an image issue. You're stressed about work. I don't know what you're going through, but what the resurrection says about your life is that you've been raised to new life through faith in the comeback. I'm going to invite the band back up. And uh, I want to close with a story uh, this morning. It was, uh, and this is one of those stories that, um, you know, on the, on the, the not so great days, man, it just keeps me going. And of the past couple of years, all the things that God has done here at White Oak, this is maybe one of the most um, encouraging uh, things for me. Um, it was the Christmas season and we just began a brand new series and uh, we were talking about uh, joy and uh, as I was beginning to close the sermon um, I felt God telling me that I needed to do like an altar call which you know if you're you're not familiar with church it's like where you give people a chance to come to the front and pray or receive the Lord and all this kind of stuff and Um, You know, if if you're from around here, you know, we don't do that very often um, as much anymore, but I felt God tell me I need to do that as I was, like, closing the sermon. And um, so I was kind of fighting at first and didn't really want to do it, you know. You're always like, what if no one responds, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, But I I just knew it's what God wanted me to do, so I kind of let God do his thing. I said, okay, God, you want it? We'll do it. And it wasn't planned, but we opened up the altar, and— um, it was a great response about probably ten or fifteen people from the church come up and confess sin and, and dedicate their life to the Lord, all kinds of stuff. But there was this one girl uh, that I had never seen before, and uh, and she she came to the front i 'd never recognized her, she looked like she was a, a visitor, and she came to the the front and uh, she kneeled like right right here, like actually like right on this step. I, I remember it like it was yesterday and she kneeled right here, and she was praying, and she was praying, and you could tell, man, her and the Lord were doing some business. I mean, she was praying, and praying, and something was going on in her life, and you could just tell, and everyone was finishing up, and praying, and uh, going back to their seat. She just kept standing there. Like, she was, I mean, she was just, I mean, we we're like on a third song, you know, and she's still there, you know, praying, and praying, and praying, and it got to the point where, like, it was kind of weird, had right, to come up and do the announcements, unless she was, like, kind of still here praying, and um, after the, the service, I, I could tell God was doing something in her heart. Um, but, but we had made an announcement that um, if anyone had given their life to the Lord, that the first step in that obedience process is, is baptism. And that you could go online and, and register for, for baptism. We had a baptism date coming up in a few weeks. And, um, but anyway, so after the service, she left. And I tried to say hi to her or go talk to her about what happened in her life. And, um, but she kind of snuck out the back, and I, I wasn't able to, uh, to talk with her. And I got up Monday morning, came into the office and checked all like the responses and stuff on the website. And I, I noticed that, that she was a 27-year-old girl I remember that because I'm, I'm 27 and she had signed up to be baptized, like she had believed in the gospel. And not only had she responded to the altar call, but it was such a moving experience to her that literally when she left here, she, I guess, went and got home on her computer, on the internet, on the website, signed up for baptism. Like, she knew what she had done, and she was responding, saying, okay, yeah, I believe. It's time for me to get baptized. And yet, the, the crazy thing about that whole story was that we actually never even got to baptize her because three weeks later, she died in her sleep. And I remember the day that I, I got the call from a really good friend of hers who had actually come with her and had been walking with her as she was now on this new faith journey. He called me, and when he, he told me what had happened, I remember getting, like, goosebumps, putting all the pieces together of, like, the altar call and, you know, her coming and responding and, and believing and, and all these kinds of things. And then it was crazy because I, I, I got a call from from her her mother, because they wanted to have the funeral here at at White Oak, because she had been coming here, and they knew that God had done something in her life, and they were kind of thinking through it. And I remember when her mom called me, it was one of those weird conversations where she's like, yeah, don't make it too spiritual, religious, I don't really know where she stood underneath, I don't don't know kind of where she was, and I was like, no, she believed. Like, I, I got the document on the website, like, She believed. It's, like, it's true, like, and you knew she had grown up on a non-church background, not Christian background, because her mom was like, obviously didn't even know she was a Christian. And the crazy part about it was that we had the joy and the privilege of performing her funeral here. About a week after she passed away, and even Evan Horn performed the funeral right here, just literally two steps above where she had given her life to the Lord and said, like, I, I can't do this anymore. I need to come back. I, I, you know, she had had her own struggles, just like all of us have struggles, and she was having things she was dealing with, and she was just so open, so humble, so knowing that she was needing the Lord. That literally, the place where we had her funeral and her body was, was the same place where she had had her comeback of a lifetime just three weeks prior. And when you hear those kinds of stories and, and you experience that in real life, and it's not just something someone told you, but like I've I've actually encountered that, it just lets me know that comebacks are always possible. You could be eighty years old in this room right now, and you could leave here with a completely changed life. What I want is we begin to close our time together as we sing and as we take communion is I don't just want you to look at the resurrection and marvel at it, but I want you to glorify and worship God by believing it so deeply that you're practicing it in your life every morning when you wake up. Because if the Spirit of God is in you, that raised Christ from the dead. This morning, in your life, wherever you're at, you have a comeback in you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. And God, I thank you that the resurrection means so much for us. I pray for all the people in this room, God, because I know every single one of us needs to come back. As I'm preaching this sermon, Lord, I can think of all the reasons why I'm not worthy enough to be up on this stage. But hallelujah, that you didn't just leave us to try and rise on our own, but that you did it for us and you offered it to us. This is the gospel. That the good news is far greater than we could have ever imagined. God, we thank you that hope springs eternal with the comeback king, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we take communion and as we celebrate this wonderful day, that we would leave here more optimistic and more hope-filled and happier than we've ever been, not because we've got some thing we're doing in our life, but because we know that you have risen from the dead and that your spirit now dwells in us, God, just because you offered it to us. God, you love us. Because of that, we have so much hope in this life. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.